Ben mentioned uh, in the opening this morning that we'll be spending January and even one Sunday in February, so six weeks in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So it would be fitting for us to spend time outside of this gathering to read through Romans 1. To, that prepares us for our time, and then it also prepares us to, um, to be able to receive and hear things that will continue to work on us through the Spirit when we're not gathered together. This morning, our focus is going to be one verse, which is Romans 1.18. So y'all read that with me. Not out loud. Y'all read with me. I'll read. That'd be weird. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I'll read it again because it's our one verse. It's our spot for the whole morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I've often marveled at the timeliness of God's word, but I'll admit today that I've wondered if kicking off the new year by talking about the wrath of God is the best idea. I've wondered if it might be better to put it off for a few weeks and kick off this new year's morning with something maybe a little more, I don't know, encouraging, uplifting, not so terrifying. But that's part of expository verse-by-verse -verse preaching. It's what we've done here at Crosspoint for 13 years. We stick to the text, and we let, when we preach expository verse-by-verse, -verse, what you're doing is you're saying, we're going to let God set the agenda for our church. That's essentially what we're doing. So, Rather than skipping over a difficult verse, we're going to let the expository preaching keep us honest and keep us from skipping over hard parts, even if those hard parts land on days that make the hard parts more awkward. In short, we preached on whoredom on Mother's Day. We can preach on wrath on New Year's Day. God used that sermon mightily, and my hope is that he'll use this text in the sermon in the same way. So here's the thing. What we have to see this morning is part of the gospel conversation is a conversation about wrath. You don't avoid wrath by not talking about it. Sometimes that's how we handle it and deal with it in our flesh. I don't want to talk about that. Well, you don't avoid God's wrath by not talking about it. Talking about wrath is part of talking about the righteousness of God. That's why today's message is titled, God's Righteous Wrath. The best way to understand everything that leads up to our focus on verse 18 is to think about this section of Scripture in terms of a conversation with Paul. You know, when we dive into the middle of a chapter on a new Sunday, it's kind of like diving into the middle of a conversation, and the best way to get our bearings is to say, well, what, what was the conversation up to this point? So we're going to use that as a tool this morning to try to figure out where we are. That conversation might go something like this, Paul, why do you want to go to Rome? See, Paul's already begun this letter to the church in Rome by stating that he wants to go there. Paul has never been to the church in Rome. He doesn't know the people there, and he had no part in planting this church, but he's eager to go there. So we can have the conversation by saying, Paul, why do you want to go to Rome? Paul's answer, to preach the gospel. Paul, why do you want to preach the gospel to Rome? Answer, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, 
Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Answer, because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, Paul, you mentioned salvation. What do the Gentiles and the Jews need to be saved from? And Paul's answer is in verse verse 18. They need to be saved from the wrath of God. It's a serious verse. It's a transitional verse. The whole first part of Romans 1 focuses on the righteousness of God, and here we make a transition to focus on the wrath of God. But I want to encourage you this morning not to think of those two things as different or opposite or unrelated, but rather, because of God's righteousness, there is wrath. Wrath fits into righteousness. I want to make wrath... I think the text makes wrath really clear this morning. I grew up with a a kind of a weird view of wrath, and I didn't really understand it. And frankly, it just terrified me because I thought it was just something that that I couldn't wrap my head around, and I didn't want to try to think about it. And I kind of grew up with that. And so I'm, I'm burdened this morning that we can get specific about what God's wrath is. First thing is that God is righteous, so there is wrath. Before we begin to dive further into this text, we have to take a minute to disconnect from our human experiences of anger. We're talking about God's anger when we're talking about God's wrath, and sometimes we don't have a perfectly holy and perfectly righteous view in our anger. What I mean is we can learn about righteous anger by looking at God's wrath, but we can never learn about God's wrath by looking at our unrighteous anger. Many people have baggage when it comes to wrath. Some believe that maybe it doesn't exist anymore because of Jesus and they view it as a thing of the past. Some believe that it's just a thing in the future that will come on the day of judgment. Some improperly view it as being like our anger but worse. Some of you may have had a father or a mother or another person in authority in your life who had anger or who was maybe oppressive or or too hard and and you think of God's wrath in terms of, well, it must be like that but just way worse. And that's not the case that we'll see this morning. James 1.20, you don't have to turn there, but I encourage you to write it in your notes. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's no way that our human anger can help us to understand the wrath of God because the two are incompatible. In places where we say, I will not put up with this anymore. I will not be treated like this, or I will not stand for that. We're making a decision to get angry, and sometimes those decisions are made in some unrighteousness. And we know that because sometimes when we get angry with others, and we maybe lose our cool a little bit, and we say, I will not, then we have to go back later and say, I'm sorry. I overreacted. I should have been more patient. I shouldn't have said it like that. God never makes that mistake. God's wrath is not like our anger. Where we say, I will not, God cannot, because he is perfectly holy. He is not moody. He does not overreact. He is not selfish. He is not irrational. He's not a cosmic killjoy who's sitting there with two handfuls of thunderbolts ready to throw them at you when you start having fun. However... We are guilty of cosmic treason. Proverbs 29, 22 states, 
A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. God's wrath doesn't do that. God's wrath doesn't stir up strife, and God's wrath doesn't cause us to transgress him more. Our anger will never help us to understand the wrath of God. That's why it's important in the front part of this message to take just a few minutes to disconnect from our unrighteous experiences of anger. So that's not what God's wrath is. So the obvious question is, so what is God's wrath? One commentator states that God's wrath is holy revulsion in the mind of God. Holy revulsion in the mind of God. This morning we have an opportunity in this text to climb into the mind of God and see what causes his holy anger. Doesn't that sound helpful? God has breathed out his word through Paul, and we have an opportunity to climb into his mind and see what is it in the mind of God that causes him to be angry and full of wrath. He isn't trying to be unpredictable. As we're talking about wrath, I want you to hear that clearly. He isn't trying to be unpredictable. He's not trying to keep you on his toes and wonder, am I going to get a, like a smite or a backhand from God? I, I don't know. Is this, is this good? Is this bad? God's not trying to be unpredictable. This morning we have specifics in the text. You are, you are seeing text here that is particular. God is mysterious, have no doubt, but he's not trying to be unpredictable in regards to wrath. This verse helps us to understand some very important specifics about God's wrath. So here's how we're going to think about it this morning. Think about a target. We're going to try to figure out what is the aim of God's wrath. What goes on the target? You can draw it in your notes. It's not a real complex thing. It took me like two hours to make that circle with that little thing, but it's not complex. The aim of God's wrath. What goes on the target? The first thing it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Ungodliness is perversity. If something is perverse or perverted, what that means is that God has a design and a purpose and a way that the thing should be, and we're going to put God aside, we're going to put his ways aside, and we're going to play the role of God. That is perversity. Ungodliness is perversity, and specifically, ungodliness in this text is against God. It's a lust for evil things. I encourage you to search your heart this morning. It's easy when we start talking about against God and perversity and a lust for evil things to think, yes, some people have those problems, but not us here in the church. Be honest with yourself this morning. God's wrath is towards ungodliness because it is a lust for evil things that is against God. I mentioned cosmic treason. Cosmic treason means that the created have wronged the creator. And there is no greater wrong that has ever existed. Cosmic treason means the created have wronged their creator. And there is no felony charge within our system of laws that even begins to, to, to compare to the magnitude of created individuals wronging their creator. So this morning... If you are a created human being who has not lived a life of perfect righteousness, you are deserving of the wrath of God. Ungodliness. 
is the target at which God's wrath takes its aim. Specific. Ungodliness is the target at which God's wrath takes its aim. It goes on to say, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is like, ungodly, is like ungodliness, but it's also a little bit different. Whereas ungodliness is towards God, against God, unrighteousness is against others. And God cares deeply about that. Unrighteousness is against others. It's a life that looks out for itself rather than the interest of others. Later on in the text, we're going to dig into this in the coming weeks. What does this life look like that is against others? And interestingly, um, it doesn't mean that you're completely separated from others. But you're isolated while you're with others because of the sin that you are in with them. Unrighteousness is against others. But th- think of it in this, these terms. This is later described in the, in the chapter as idolatry with others. Impurity with others. Unnatural relations with others. This is unrighteousness. It is seen in the form of covetousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, haughtiness, ruthlessness, approving of evil with and toward others. So as God's wrath is towards ungodliness, it is also towards unrighteousness. If you are a created human being who has ever wronged another created human being, you are deserving of the wrath of God. Unrighteousness is the target at which God's wrath takes its aim. Think of unrighteousness as being your unrighteous movement and it's targeted on other people. All of those things, deceit, maliciousness, it's not just inward. There's a t- it's landing on others. And so while you're landing on others, God's landing on you with his wrath. Suffice it to say, God in this one little verse shows that he cares deeply about how you view and treat him and how you view and treat others. That's what we're talking about when we're trying to figure out where wrath is going. What is the target? How you treat him, how you view him, how you view others, how you treat others. So God's wrath is the purest of consequences. It's exactly what is deserved. God is not saying that he will not stand for your sin. He cannot stand for your sin. He is perfectly holy. If he was to turn to blind eye or to kind of overlook or sweep under the rug an ounce of evil, he would not be perfectly holy. He would not be perfectly righteous. But because he's perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness must, must, must be dealt with. All ungodliness, not just some of it. Again, not random, not unpredictable. Specifically, all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. John Stott, one commentator, I've spent over a decade in his Romans commentary. It's wonderful. And one of the things he says about this particular verse, he says, God's wrath is his deeply personal abhorrence of evil. It is his holy hostility to evil. It's his refusal to condone evil. It's his refusal to come to terms with evil. God is not in heaven saying, well, they're all evil. I guess I just got to put up with it. No, he is perfectly holy. He is perfectly 
righteous. Stott goes on to say, nothing arouses God's anger except evil, and evil always does. Nothing arouses God's anger except evil, and evil does it every single time. So why? We've seen it clear from the text. God's wrath is towards unrighteousness. God's wrath is towards ungodliness. But why? And the answer is that it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So why is God's wrath towards these two things? Because men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I want you to connect a few dots in this little moment. What this means is that God puts a high priority on how we view and treat him, and God puts a high priority on how we view and treat everybody else because God puts a high priority on truth. He hates it when truth is suppressed. It's interesting that the forward movement of truth is so incredibly relational. The forward movement of truth according to our gospel is, is so relational. That truth moves forward in our relationships with our relationship with God and, and the time we spend with God. That truth moves forward in how we treat others. That's why the church is a, is a city on a hill and a light and a beacon because people are looking saying, hey, those people aren't treating each other with maliciousness and deceit and gossip and hatefulness. They're loving each other. Where does that love come from? The forward movement of truth is incredibly and remarkably relational. That's why there's no lone rangers in the faith. God's wrath is toward that which suppresses the truth. God's wrath is towards that which suppresses the truth. You have to get that this morning. So how do unrighteousness and ungodliness suppress the truth? How does that happen? In the original language, suppress means to retain, to seize, or to withhold. It stresses holding fast in order to hinder the course of the progress of something or someone. The first image that popped into my head when I read that definition was when I was little, I am the oldest of four boys. So oftentimes, um, my little brothers would somehow get injured or hurt by me, the oldest of the four boys. And so we would get into an argument, something would happen, they would take a swing, I would take a swing. Generally, I was the bigger you know, brother, it's not the case now, so I'm careful. But when we were younger, um, I would land harder and they would get hurt, and I'm telling mom, right? Been there, I'm telling mom, I'm telling dad. And as soon as my little brothers would run off, I would seize them by the back of the shirt. And I would pull them back. I did not want the truth of what happened going forward. So I would seize them. I would grab them. And if they tried to speak, I'd slap. Just like that. Slap a hand over their mouth. Zip it, dude. We can work this out, right? <laughs> Mom and dad don't have to know. Our ungodliness and our unrighteousness grab truth by the back of the shirt and put a hand over its mouth. That's what ungodliness and unrighteousness do. That's why we pursue holiness. Not because we're trying to, by good works, earn God's favor. It's because when we're unrighteous and we're ungodly, what we're doing is we're seizing truth by the back of the shirt, pulling it back and slapping a hand over the mouth of it. No! 
You're not going forward. This happens inwardly and it happens outwardly. We suppress truth inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, this means that you know the truth, but you choose not to live by it. I've heard truth. I've grown up in church. I know the Bible verses, but I'm not going to allow my life to be guided by those truths, those truth principles, those realities. I'm going to pretend like that's not reality, and I'm going to replace it with my own reality. That's perversity, remember? So we can suppress it inwardly. I'm not going to deal with it. We can also suppress truth outwardly. Outwardly, this means that you know truth, but you live and speak in such a way that you keep others from receiving it. Suppressing truth is evil. Suppressing truth makes God genuinely angry. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that I wasn't too sure about Happy New Year's wrath. Wasn't sure how that was going to land. But it's interesting because as we look at what we've just looked at in this text, I actually think this is where we can begin to form some pretty significant goals for 2017, individually and as a church. There's two goals that I want us to talk about this morning for 2017 from this text. First, don't suppress truth inwardly. That's the first goal this morning, to write down. Don't suppress truth inwardly. It's interesting. Our consciences are a strong and sometimes troubling thing And everyone has one. Why do I bring up the conscience? Because that's usually where it starts. There's the heart issue and the conscience issue. In Scripture, the mind and the heart are connected. And what happens when we're suppressing truth? Something goes wrong in our conscience. And every single person, believer and non-believer alike, have a conscience according to Scripture. Turn over to Romans 2. Romans 2.14. This is why it's often the case that when someone is living a life of ungodliness and unrighteousness, when someone has shown patterns of perversity and habits of selfishness, they just don't want to talk about it, right? Hey, can we talk about what is so completely backwards in your life? Can we talk about how you're living? Can we talk about how you're moving? I don't want to talk about it. Suppress, suppress, suppress. I want to hear about God's standards. I want to hear about God. They just push it way down deep. They will often even state emphatically that they don't believe that stuff anymore. And interestingly, in our world, in our culture, we have entire communities that are created around suppressing the truth. I don't want to hear it. Entire communities where I will never speak of something that might convict you. I will only affirm and affirm and affirm some more. This chapter talks about that, doing what's wrong and giving approval to others. We'll get to that. But the conscience is interesting. Romans 2.14 says, for when, Gentiles do, well, for, what, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. It's interesting that all over the world, there's people who know right and wrong, but they don't have a Bible and they don't have the law, they don't have the original law for the Jews, yet they, they know that it's wrong to do certain things and it's right to do other things. That's what this is talking about. It says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
A conflicted conscience is proof that an individual is suppressing the truth inwardly. A convicted conscience. If you're thinking, man, this isn't right, it's probably not right. Because biblically, it's proof that truth is being suppressed inwardly. This means that by God's design, when we battle against darkness, whether in our own lives or we're battling with other people, when you share the gospel with someone who doesn't know it, when you're trying to live the gospel in your own life and having trouble because your flesh just keeps winning, good news, your conscience is on your side. That's God's design. When you go share the gospel with someone who's lost, good news, it's not that nothing's going on over there, but the reality is God has convicted their conscience, and their conscience is somehow on your side. So don't suppress the truth inwardly. Goal number one for, new year, for the new year is don't suppress the truth inwardly. Don't gloss over and ignore the areas of your life that need work. Don't be lighthearted in setting goals for the year. Be serious and sober about the goals you need to set. Don't gloss over and ignore areas that need work. Don't suppress truth by continuing in known sin. If you have known sin in your life, God hates it when you don't do something about it. Do something about it. Lean into God. Trust his gospel and don't suppress the truth inwardly. In dragging sin into the light, you will find that all of your other goals that you might have will be greatly served by righteousness and holiness and purity. So this text doesn't tell us to not care about New Year's resolutions. It, it says make some big ones. Move in holiness. Eagerly try to put to death the deeds of the flesh that you may not suppress truth. Our second goal is pretty obvious. Don't suppress the truth outwardly. Number one, don't suppress the truth inwardly. Number two, don't suppress the truth outwardly. The church... This church, Crosspoint Fellowship, does a wonderful job focusing on being good disciples. One of my privileges and joys as one of the pastors here is seeing individuals and families eager to hear the word, eager to understand the word, and eager to take that word and live it, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. I love it. I rejoice getting to see it all of the time. This church, more than any church I've been a part of, and it's not a, it's not a boastful thing, it's a, it's a give glory to God thing, takes seriously the call to be a good disciple. But I wonder if we don't have also some room for growth in making good disciples. Part of being a good disciple is making good disciples. The church is always on mission. We can suppress truth outwardly by living and speaking and acting in an ungodly and an unrighteous manner, but we can also suppress truth outwardly by simply not speaking of it to others. If you have opportunity, don't suppress truth by not talking to others about it. What that means is truth exists. We have it, right? All scriptures breathed out by God. We have this. We gather. We talk about it. We have truth. We enjoy truth. We work on it in our families. But if we restrain the spread of it by not talking about it with others, we suppress it. So goal number two for this new year is to let truth be set free through your actions and through your words towards other people. Speak of Christ openly. 
stop being quiet about the Jesus stuff. If it's important to you personally, let it be important to you personally toward others. Don't suppress it. Share it. It's made to be shared. Befriend non-believers. This is what it might look like. Love strangers. Be hospitable to those who don't know Christ. Our communities growing up around us. I mentioned this last year, a couple weeks ago, that there's 400 families moving in across the street between the apartment complex and the 83-acre residential development. That's a problem that most churches would love to have. Oh, there's too many people. Let's make sure we share the gospel with those people. Be hospitable to those who don't know Christ. Form genuine relationships with others, and in those relationships, speak lovingly of Christ. It's so foolish sometimes how we... we think that with our unbelieving friends, we don't want to mess anything up by talking about Jesus. Have you ever done that? I mean, don't raise your hand, but have you ever done that where you have an unbelieving friend? You're like, man, things are good. It's so great. I'm a believer. They're not. We've got this relationship. We have you know, good conversations. We can have a meal together, and we're, we're walking side by side. We're even working together. I don't want to screw it up by talking about Jesus. In the moment where you're hesitant to proclaim truth, in the moment where you're tempted to suppress truth, I want you to remember the target. And in the place of all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, start filling it in with the names of your coworkers and your family members, your friends, your family that is extended, that you see on holidays, your neighbors, even your children. God's wrath is meant to sober us, and it's meant to quicken us to share truth with other people. Put that next slide up. I really want you to think about what names would be on that target. God's wrath is specific. The only thing that awakens God's wrath is evil, but evil does it always. His wrath will be poured out on all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. His wrath will be poured out on any friends who are moving in ungodliness and unrighteousness without Christ. His wrath will be poured out on any family members and coworkers and neighbors who are moving in all ungodliness and all unrighteousness without Christ. It's a guarantee, and the thing that I would almost want to write over that target is eternally. It's meant to be sobering. I want you to think whose names would be on that target. Who do you need to make it a point to not suppress the truth with, but to let the truth be free and to speak it lovingly to someone who might be on the target of God's wrath? Take a moment. Think about it. Write it down. Guilt trips and scare tactics are cheap. This is the part of the sermon where I have to be very careful because there's been a lot of hellfire and brimstone sermons preached about God's wrath that maybe don't do a great job of making much of the gospel and they just scare you to death. But this text is utterly sobering to consider the reality of God's wrath towards those who are living in ungodliness and unrighteousness. All of eternity cannot exhaust God's hatred toward evil. 
When the cup of God's wrath is poured out, it's not poured out quickly. It's poured out forever. We should care that people are lost. We should care that there are names of real people who could be on that target. We should care that there are people who are God's children and don't yet know it, and they will know it when you speak truth to them. We have a huge opportunity as a church in 2017 to not suppress the truth outwardly. It's sobering. We've clearly established that suppressing truth draws the wrath of God. That's the target. But our last point for the morning is just as sobering. Speaking truth and living truth and writing about truth doesn't save you from God's wrath. See, if suppressing truth draws God's wrath, you can't just get out of it by saying, well, okay, I'm not going to suppress it. I'm going to talk more. Ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to convert some people. I'm going to save some people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to work hard not to sin. That doesn't save you from God's wrath. No matter how much godliness and righteousness we walk in, there is still sin in our lives, and every single piece of evil is deserving of God's wrath. Look at Romans 3.23. Right before it, it says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I ended the morning that way, it would not be a happy new year. It would not be one full of opportunity. It would not be one full of big goals and, and wonderful possibilities in the gospel. If it ended there, all of us are on that target forever. Because all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. Thank God it doesn't end there. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall continually over and over again short of that glory of God and are justified. What? How are we justified if we sin over and over again? All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word propitiation, some of you may know it, some of you may not. It literally means wrath absorber. It literally means wrath absorber. Those who put their faith in Jesus have in Jesus propitiation. They have in Jesus one who absorbs their wrath. When you put your faith in Christ, you are putting your faith in the only one who doesn't deserve wrath. The only one who did live that perfectly righteous life that God requires. The only begotten Son of God whom God put forth as your wrath absorber. Put that next slide up there. That is good news right there. You have two options. 
There are two options for every individual who has ever breathed a borrowed breath on the face of this planet. One, you absorb the wrath of God for forever. Or two, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God for you. Thank God there's not one target, right? Thank God that he put forth his only son to absorb wrath. Wrath is not going to just disappear. It has to be absorbed. It will either be absorbed by you eternally in your ungodliness and unrighteousness, or it will be absorbed by Jesus Christ once and for all in your place. Without Christ, you absorb the wrath of God eternally. There is no escape. But in Christ, all of your ungodliness and all of your unrighteousness is forgiven, not because it's overlooked, not because you earned it, but because Christ absorbed the wrath that you deserved. All ungodliness, all unrighteousness forgiven, and all of the wrath that you deserve was poured out on Christ completely, totally, fully. There's nothing left for you to have to worry about with unrighteousness and ungodliness. I marveled last night. I sat in my office and just wept. So thankful that we don't have to work on absorbing wrath. So thankful that my kids, they don't only have to not worry about God's wrath, but it's been completely taken care of, that our children, that there's an opportunity for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers, that they don't have to absorb the wrath of God on their own, but they can put their faith in Christ. But people, to put their faith in Christ, they need feet to go to them and speak truth and not suppress it. We have such an opportunity in this community. We have been here for 13 years. We've been about this size for a while. And we have a huge opportunity to speak the gospel, to love others with truth, and to make sure we do not ever, ever suppress it. We're about to take the supper. And I want you to consider how we should respond to such good news. And as we distribute the elements, Clint, you can come on up. As we pass out the elements, you may even begin to pray for those who are on your list. Pray for those whom you need to key in on because you know what target they're on. And marvel and rejoice that that's not the only option.